Oh my, what a lovely evening this has been. Yes, quite. To truly end the night in lavish style, what's the most expensive way that we can get home? Perhaps a town car? Why not order a blade? I do love seeing the city from the sky. Oh, darlings, I didn't realize you had fallen into the poor house. Excuse me? A town car? That must be the new money in you. What? Everyone who is really someone takes the West train. It's extravagant. But how much does it cost? For just a 27-minute trip, hundreds and hundreds, old sport. Paid for by the taxpayer, of course. <laughs> <laughs> You're listening to Greater Greater Portland on Portland Radio Projects, 99.1 FM. I'm Bradley Bondi. I'm Xavier D. Stickler. Hey, I'm Jenna Demmel. And today we're talking about the train, specifically our weird little commuter train that not a lot of people have heard of unless you happen to be a transportation nerd like us. Full disclosure, I had not heard of this train. It's called the West. It stands for Westside Express Service. And yeah, I'd not heard of this before you guys talked about it. And in our brainstorming sessions, you referred to it as the West Side Ghost Train, which technically it isn't, but it might as well be with the low ridership it's getting. Yeah, and it's 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 understandable why you haven't really heard of it. TriMet doesn't particularly talk about it, and I would say the vast majority of Portlanders don't know its existence. Uh, I would say even the people who it's like would make a convenient commute via the West don't know about it. You really don't know about it unless you live directly on the tracks and hear it going by. And I mean, West is on the map inside of the Max, and it kind of does the same role of getting people on those longer distance trips. Uh, it runs in between Wilsonville to Beaverton Transit Center with three stops in between. But of course, Max is a fairly successful system and gets quite a few riders. But Wes is something. Wes is indeed something. But why is that? Why is it that something? <laughs> <laughs> I am the queen of non sequiturs. Um, I think first we need to talk about commuter rail to get an idea. To do that, let's understand the spectrum of rail transit, the gender spectrum of rail transit, if you will. On the one hand, we have trains that are met for transit, right? This is going to be everything from your streetcar to your light rail, which is kind of like a made-up fake thing, um, like which is at the max, uh, even all the way up to your subway. All of these are, are transit vehicles. The vast majority, in the vast majority of cases, the only things going to be running on those tracks is that transit service, right? I mean, there are like some historical exceptions where you had like oil trains running on the Chicago L to bring like furnace oil into downtown Chicago. Doesn't really happen anymore other than like a few like weird rail fan nerd anecdotes. Yeah, that just sounds kind of dangerous. Uh, it's it? kind of surprising Chicago only burned down once. Yeah, the great Chicago yeah. fire. <laughs> anyway. Yeah, so basically, you know, all of the time, your transit vehicles are going to be more or less, like in a few exceptions, like the Portland streetcar, they're going to be what's called in their own row, R-O-W, right of way. Additionally, you're going to be utilizing the vast majority of both your labor and your trains for a majority of the day. The thinking being like you've already paid for your trains, right? 
So you want to get your money's worth out of them, even if you're running like a publicly funded transit service, which most transit operations in the US are, you've still already put that investment in. You still want those things, you know, one, collecting as much fare box revenue throughout the day as possible, but two, you've already put the investment in the track, in the vehicles, so you want them serving the public as much of the day as possible. Right. The goals of these transit services are to be very frequent. I mean, the largest lever on a frequency of transit is like the cost of labor. But ideally, you want a rail service running as frequently as possible. That's because, you know, transit ridership depends on really three things, frequency, speed, and reliability. Now, on the other end of the spectrum, you have your long distance rail service. In America, that's going to be Amtrak. Most Amtrak lines, like ideally, they come to a town like once a day, sometimes even less. Not great service. You still have this really high equipment utilization. And that's because even though they come very infrequently, they're traversing such long distances that they are continuously in use. They're always in motion. In America, these services almost pretty much uniformly are on freight main lines. Amtrak actually owns very, very little track itself. The part that they do own between Washington, D.C. and Boston is like the Acela Corridor, also called the Northeast Corridor. Uh, and that's where you have the only thing in America that comes close to high-speed rail. And I and would argue, like, yeah. That's not high-speed rail. <laughs> yeah. It's, hey, it's high-speed rail, okay? It's high-speed by comparison to what we get over here, which is, yeah, it's it's cute. Let's just call it that. It's comparable to, like, most European systems-ish. Ish. 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 Okay. Faster than Cascades, at least. Mm -hmm. So then you have commuter rail, which I would say attempts to be in the sphere of transit, but ultimately it's really not. It kind of serves in this middle ground that is the worst of both worlds. The best example of what I can give as what's wrong with commuter rail is the Virginia Rail Express. That's the VRE. There, I believe there are a couple different lines that take commuters from the suburbs in Virginia into Washington, D.C. Union Station. At its worst, it runs uh, six trains in the morning going into D.C., six trains in the evening coming out of D.C., and that's it. Meaning that those trains are only being utilized for one run in each direction per day. And all of them take a six to nine hour break in the middle of the day. The crews too, sitting in a break room or you know, on the tracks at Washington, D.C., fiddling there. I'm just picturing, you know, uh, the old Thomas the Train kids shows where the trains like go back into their little cubby holes, go back into their little tunnels. And I'm picturing them being there for six to seven hours during that break, just <laughs> hanging out being like, when do I come out? Yeah. And it's, it's, I mean, so by virtue of just how energy efficient trains are, this is still far more sustainable than all those people like driving into Washington, D.C., right? It's still better. At the same time, it's very expensive to do that because not only are you paying for the trains to essentially only be used twice a day, but you're also paying those crews, which are probably union, so it's a fairly decent wage, uh, to sit there all day. Yeah, sit there all day, playing cards, eat some food. They probably can't leave. Exactly. Now, there are some good things about commuter rail. Again, like steel wheels on steel rail, very high efficiency. Even if you're running a diesel train, it's going to be more sustainable 
than a car or even a bus. Additionally, these are very high capacity. I think there's actually a very famous photo and we can put it in the slides for the YouTube, but it's a picture of a freeway in Chicago. And in the distance, you can kind of see a train. And the comment is there are probably more people on that train than in those cars, right? And that's, it's a really good visual for understanding how physically inefficient freeways are and just how efficient trains are. But commuter rail has, at least the way it's implemented in the US, has a lot of negatives. First and foremost, we have to ask ourselves, who is commuter rail for? So commuter rail is going to be largely for people who are living in suburban areas. It's pretty uniformly done between a major downtown employment center is the to destination and the from destination are going to be wealthier, far-flung exurbs that you may even need to drive to in order to get to the station, right? You may actually still be necessitating a car trip in order to be transported there. And because of this, because of the type of commuter we're tailoring this service to, these individuals are going to be richer, they're going to be wider, they're probably not going to be transit dependent, largely speaking. And again, because of all these reasons, because of this low equipment utilization and the fact that we're using, you know, gas generally, I think there are very few electric commuter lines in America outside of like the Northeast. It's going to be fairly expensive. I think it's important to contrast this model with how trains are run in Europe, particularly commuter trains or what might be better termed regional rail, which in many cases either link two metropolitan areas, downtowns, or various suburbs that also run through the downtown, but don't just end there, right? They through run through the downtown into other suburbs. So you do get more of a regional plan and you have metro-like frequency uh, that gives you the ability to run all day. And again, not just tailor your service for people who work that kind of nine to five office job. Given all of this with commuter rail, it seems like it's either not very well thought out or very hit or miss, depending on location and, I guess, assets and capital and things like that. What incentivized one to be built in Washington County? Also, this could totally be a bus. Why wasn't the West a bus? Rail service along the corridor that the West runs on actually makes a good amount of sense. So as the suburban growth happened in Washington County, it was pretty haphazard. And so there's not really a good street network on which to run a nice grid of bus lines that are straight, direct, in between destinations. Like the best north-south bus that's kind of close by is the 76. But it's very indirect. If you look at it on a map, it's really squiggly, kind of like trying to trace out a route between Tualatin and Beaverton. And, you know, I think it's also important to note that a lot of the communities we're talking about were actually built around the old rail line. Were built around this rail line back when it was an inner urban service between Portland and Salem down onto Eugene. I think there's an argument that there's like reasons why places like Tualatin and Tigard are even, you know, quote unquote, places today is because of these tracks. Yes, absolutely. It's no coincidence that downtown Beaverton is where it's at. Downtown Beaverton's where it is because two rail lines met there, and that's that's a pretty convenient place to put a town when you don't have cars yet. And, you know, I, I guess I kind of grew up in the suburbs. I like to consider myself, you know, like a huge Portland guy, but I was actually raised in Tualatin. And 
honestly, the lines between like Tigard and Beaverton or Tigard and Tualatin, maybe even to an extent like Tualatin and Wilsonville these days seem kind of arbitrary. If you're driving through, you really wouldn't be able to physically tell like the difference between Portland and Vancouver where there's a river or even Portland and Beaverton where there's the West Hills. And it didn't used to be that way though, right? These used to be, you know, Tigard and Tualatin used to be very different communities that were separated by a lot of natural lands and a lot of farms. And over the years through suburban sprawl, they've just kind of become this like amorphous blob of development. Blob of development amid the sweet, sweet wetlands and natural preserves. I mean, there are still some lovely wetlands along the West Tracks. It's mm-hmm. a very scenic ride. Oh, no. Yeah, absolutely. And we'll get into, we actually went on a ride on the West in preparation for this episode. We'll talk a little bit more about our ride later on here. And this historic rail line that kind of, you know, built the Tualatin Valley that all the cities spurred up around there were two actually. They had service from downtown Portland to Tualatin in about 30 minutes, which I would argue, despite stopping in a dozen places on the way, is service that is better than what we have now. I mean, it takes 27 minutes for us to go from Beaverton to Wilsonville, which is like, I think even a little bit shorter of a distance. Uh, And then beyond that, you know, the Oregon Electric Railway could take you from downtown Portland to downtown Salem in an hour and a half. And we don't have any transit like that that can do that. I mean, Amtrak cascades, but that doesn't run frequently enough for that to be like a meaningful commute artery. Yeah, and some, because of all of these factors, the West officially opened in 2009. And I think a big question on my mind in particular is, who is this train for? specifically like who who commutes on this rail so planning for this train actually started in the 1990s and it took just about 15 years nearly 20 years to plan and the thought was this wilsonville in the early 2000s really up until the last few years has been the fastest growing city in oregon they were adding a ton of housing additionally wilsonville has always kind of been a little bit of a suburban employment center at the same time, you have the like chip industry and the technology industry and Nike adding a lot of jobs in Beaverton. So you kind of have a lot of jobs going up in one place, a lot of housing going up in the other. The thought was that this would be like a great commuter service between Wilsonville and the tech corridor. Even if you worked in downtown Portland, you would be able to take the West from, you know, Tualatin and then transfer to either the Blue or Red Line Max in Beaverton. It appears that this definitely was the envisioned plan, but most of the expected outcomes of the plan were not necessarily met. Even the construction of the trains themselves went off the rails, so to speak. Yeah, Colorado Railcar was a company that was following up on a Obama-era commuter rail idea. The administration famously took the uh, all-of-the-above approach. Rather than investing heavily in a technology that could be standardized across cities, like getting every mid-sized city a light rail system or a metro system, they doled out money to a bunch of different, not thoroughly vetted ideas. One of them was to design a DMU, a diesel multiple unit, Mm -hmm. which unlike a regular train, which has like the locomotive in the front which has all like the motors and stuff and then a bunch of unpowered rail cars behind it a dmu is the cars themselves 
and every single car has power, and it's powered with a diesel generator. Yeah, it's like a self-contained unit, basically. Yes. Uh, the hope being that it would be able to reduce costs enough to revive commuter rail lines with l smaller levels of ridership along lightly used freight corridors. But the manufacturer of these trains went bust, and Tremont had to acquire the debt of them and pay the suppliers directly. Oh, that's too bad. With TriMet acquiring the debt, did they end up buying any of these machines? I mean, it did mostly work out. They got they got two train sets out of it. Oh, that's cool. We we can we can dig two two cute little train sets. But um, the West has been running effectively since two thousand nine. It's been let me do math here fourteen years. In these fourteen years, how do you think it's going, guys? Pretty it's going awful. Well. <laughs> it's going not well, pretty awful. Okay, we're relatively unanimous in that. We've got a little stats and a graph right here in front of us from TriMet service and ridership information. And if you look at the average weekday ridership, in 2009, it started with 1,175 people riding it. And then it's kind of like a steady climb. And then in 2014, something happened where everybody wanted to ride it, everybody being over 2,000 people. And then there was a steady decline. And then in the pandemic, blop, down to 300, 400 people. And it's, I think in 2022, like around 300 or 400 still. And this is less than the majority of bus lines, even post-pandemic. So TriMet goes into this project thinking that ridership is going to peak around uh, 5,000 uh, that's obviously not the case. It peaks in 2014, around 2000, falters, and then is still providing an equivalent capacity of like 10 buses. The ridership of the West has frankly been abysmally low. And to understand why it's so massively underperforming, we got to think about the three things that makes transit useful. It needs to be pretty quick needs to connect to places people want to go, and the service needs to be frequent. Touching on the first point, the West is fairly quick. It could be faster, but overall, it's end time to end time from first stop to last stop. It's 27 minutes. It could be faster if it were electrified and did some track improvements, but overall, I think it is fast enough, and it can be very useful. Yeah, I mean, it's not a slouch. Uh, average is a faster speed than the max does. Yeah, I think it was like between 50 and 60 miles per hour max, right? Yeah, it gets up going pretty fast. I think the average is around 35 miles an hour, which it could be faster, but it's fast enough that it could be useful. Okay, let's talk about destinations next. When you exit the station at Wilsonville, you'll immediately notice that it's a parking lot. That's how most of the stations are. There's nothing around you and at the couple stations where there are stuff around you it's all it's kind of all right but it's also not like that much stuff Twalton's okay but it's mostly parking lots still same with beaverton it's mostly parking lots mm -hmm. beaverton has the shopping center which i might add when i was trying to park and ride that day when we rode the train it's very, the shopping center is very actively anti-park and ride. Uh, they're immediately like, nope, you can't park here. You're going to be towed, but you're not going to be towed. <laughs> they, didn't, they didn't catch Jenna. They didn't catch me. 
so okay so the land use around the stations is bad but land use can change over time if the cities and metro legalize the sort of like walkable neighborhoods that are well suited to transit slowly it could change but so far only a couple of the stations have legalized like apartment buildings beaverton legalized high rises which is cool mm -hmm. but that'll take time to infill so bad land use isn't necessarily a deal breaker for the service though great bus service can extend the catchment area for a station so long as there's lots of buses coming frequently the trillium line up in ottawa is pretty comparable to the west it has pretty bad land use it doesn't go to the uh, downtown of the city but unlike west it has phenomenally high ridership because the train comes frequent and so do the buses that mm -hmm. connect up with the train and with buses and riders and things like that comes the third component which is frequency yeah so operating frequency is really where west kills its usefulness where it fails with its commuter rail operating philosophy right it's kind of targeted towards this nine to five office worker which one probably is not going to come back anywhere near the degree it was pre-pandemic. Additionally, as we talked about earlier with these, you know, gen what are the general issues with commuter rail are already going to be people who happen to have a car. This There is also reason to suggest that this is already not the people who are riding West. In a 2014 survey, it found that 45% of West riders are individuals without cars, which would be high for even a bus, let alone what it's supposed to be commuter rail. So this service really is helping serve a niche, but its service is not at all tailored to that. Mm -hmm. Additionally, like it shuts down after 7 p.m., right? So again, you really have to be working in either really close to a station area during certain hours, that nine to five. It has no service on the weekend. You know, like us three actually had a really hard time finding a day when we could all get together to ride this. Yep. Because Bradley I, has a typical I had look. to actually use a vacation day because it shuts down too early for me to get to a station before it shuts down for the evening. And it doesn't run on the weekend. It doesn't run on weekends. It doesn't run on Juneteenth. It doesn't run on Memorial Day, right? It has like, what was it, Bradley? Like a nine hour long gap with no service in the middle of the day? Yep. And it nine has hours. holiday hours? My goodness. <laughs> Yeah, and during the uh, limited six hours of operations that it does run, only 45 minutes between trains, which, like, like as we talked about earlier, it's kind of the antithesis of what you want with transit. Because your transit service, ideally, is going to be something that, like, people show up randomly for, right? People show up randomly to a bus stop or a train platform, and then the time between trains is so short that you're just able to like comfortably get on. And the upper bounds of this is like 15 minutes, right? Anything beyond 15 minutes kind of moves into this more like long distance idea of like a scheduled train yeah. where you're planning your entire day around getting this one certain train. Like 45 minutes is a frequency that you'd expect between like, like Paris to Madrid trains in Europe, right? Yeah. I mean, this is like you have tickets to get on this specific train not a train that you'd want to use to get to your job every day. Paris to Madrid, that is the dream, isn't it? So the West fails 
all three requirements for being a useful service. But it gets worse. Yeah. So as we did in our funny little bit at the beginning, uh, the West is very, very expensive to ride. There are many different metrics you can use when talking about transit service to measure its efficiency. One of them is operational total operational cost per rider. Now, this isn't a perfect metric, right? Because it kind of frames it as every additional rider is costing TriMet more, when the opposite is actually true, right? You're going to be running the train empty or you're going to be running the train full and it's actually you know cheaper and better for everyone when you're running it full however cap or operational cost per rider is a very good way to see where your subsidy is being best spent now obviously the bus subsidy and the cost per rider per max are much higher than we would like them to be and they are much much higher than they were pre-pandemic but the west is in a whole different league it's at one point last year, it was for every passenger riding the West, it was costing over $100. Hmm. Yeah, that's a lot more than the 250 for riding the bus. <laughs> now, the uh, cost per rider is important. But what makes it worse is even when you ignore the low ridership, even if the system had high ridership, the cost would still be much higher than they should be. For one metric for uh, measuring the cost of running a system is the cost per revenue hour, which is when the train's running, how much does it cost per hour? And the cost to run a West train, full or empty, compared to a Max train, full or empty, is 10x. It costs around 10 times as much per hour to run. And that is kind of complicated on why that is. But part of it is... That the, serve, that the trains are just being poorly utilized. Yeah, well, part of it's that. Part of it, I would say, it probably comes down to two things, right? It's going to be labor. So on a max train, you just have your, your, your driver, what's called your operator. On these trains, you have the engineer who's driving, and then additionally, you have a conductor. It was even worse when the, the West was running two-car trains, because then you would have two conductors, one for each car which I think is like a misinterpretation of Federal Railway Administration rules. I don't think that you need a whole conductor for each car. And then the other aspect of this high cost is going to be the fact that uh, diesel is a lot more expensive than electricity. Mm -hmm. And it was peak expensive during the pandemic, too. I don't remember how much it was, but it's still spendy. And running the West is also an operation is also a nightmare from an operation standpoint in terms of rolling stock. So we talked about the purchase that was made from Colorado Railcar. We bought three DMUs and one unpowered passenger car from them. The issue is because Colorado Railcar really only produced this model for TriMet, and I think maybe one was delivered to SunRail, the parts are very unique. It takes them, when something goes wrong, when one goes down, it takes them a lot longer than anticipated to get back up again. The cost is a lot higher. So Triumph has actually had to buy uh, four uh, DMUs from the 1950s to supplant to the current fleet. Oh, geez. So we're running on 70-year-old stock. That's that's cool, too. Yeah. Literally 70-year-old trains. Positively ancient. Positively ancient. <laughs> 
What's the current plan for our big special boy? There are a couple issues. Obviously, the level of subsidy that is going into this train in an area where ridership is going to be lower and wider and richer uh, is inequitable. So there is something of an incentive to do something to reform the status quo. There are some issues with that, though. Number one, TriMet has a 50-year contract with Portland and Western to continue this service. It's possible that they would be able to get out of that contract, but even if they were, TriMet has a federal obligation to either continue the service or repay the Fed's contribution to it if you if they discontinue it within a certain time frame of it opening, and we're still in that time frame. Hmm. So we're kind of locked in then. Yeah, and even beyond that, right, there's like a structural incentive for this to kind of be, for the can to be kicked down the road. Uh, largely because like the leaders who brought this project to fruition, especially in Washington County, are more or less the same people who are still in power, right? Like no one wants this egg on their face. And as we've talked about, not a lot of people know about this and discontinuing it would probably bring it up in the news. So I think a lot of leaders in, you know, West Portland in the West Metro have a strong incentive to just kind of like leave it be, let it be the redheaded stepchild that like no one knows or talks about. Mm -hmm. But if we don't let it be, I know since you two are students and I almost said connoisseurs of like transportation and urban planning, do you have any ideas for alternatives to improve this, improve the West as it is? So idea zero, we could call it, would just be to kill it, right? Like repay the feds like a couple hundred million dollars. Um, well, it's less than that. It's like a hundred million or something. Uh, It would probably be over a hundred million right either way it's three digits in the millions and we would not probably want to do that yeah so option zero is to kill it repay the feds at least a hundred million just get rid of it and maybe improve like commuter service on bus 76. this is an idea that's pitched by cascade policy institute which is a like a libertarian like a libertarian front organization that's really more of like an arch conservative neoconservative think tank funded by the Koch brothers they offer a lot of criticism of basically every transit project trimet does some of it honestly well founded but ultimately their solution is to just not do the transit wow i wonder why fossil fuel barons might not want transit running yeah funny how that works what's the next idea this is the perhaps the hardest idea, but it's the one that Trimet should be pursuing, and that's to confront the failure head on. Gasp. That would involve ditching the commuter rail operating philosophy and operating the West more like it operates the max. Pretty frequent, all day long, operates into the evenings, doesn't have a gap in the middle of the day, operates on weekends. It can do that. There's, they would have to like figure out the technical hurdles, the organizational hurdles to make that happen, but they can do it. This might look like 
you know, lowering your labor costs, maybe getting an FRA waiver on the conductors, electrifying so you no longer have to pay, you know, the exorbitant cost of gas. You may have to put some money into it to double track it, but generally just like make the train better. That should be the bare minimum of what we're trying to do here. The next idea is a little bit bigger one, and it's been one that's proposed basically since the opening of the line, which is extend it down to Salem. Certain legislators have pushed that idea for years. Most commuter rail systems in the United States, again, go between a suburb and a major employment center. This one just kind of essentially goes to two suburbs that each kind of have some employment centers but aren't major cities in their own right. Salem would be a major city and there is a lot of Portland to Salem and Salem to Portland commutes. Right now, there is virtually no good option between getting the two places between getting between the two cities as a commuter. Now, there are some issues with this proposal. To start, it would be going down the Portland and Western line. It would be going straight through Kaiser. So Kaiser's very excited by this idea. Mm -hmm. But there would be like track conflicts. Portland and Western has indicated that they would need to double track the segment between Tualatin and Wilsonville, which could be very costly. Generally, the station would not go through many areas with homes. And then when it does finally get down into Salem, it would be street running for a certain segment. So it would have some very tricky crossings and might be having to operate at a slow speed. But there might actually be a certain demand for this, right? Like if you're if you work in Salem, you're probably a state employee. If you're a state employee, chances are, you know, you might be able to afford a house that, quite frankly, isn't in Salem. And if you work in Portland, the chances are you may not be able to afford housing in Portland and you might have to live in Salem. One of the concerns with this idea, though, is that it doesn't really address the underlying problems with the system. Just extending it without fixing the infrequency of the system is a very likely outcome of an extension. Yeah, so there's theoretically it would be double the problem that we already have or maybe triple. And then we have another idea which is basically like giving up on this corridor, right? And it would be instead choosing to transfer the equipment, the maintenance facility and possibly even the personnel to an extent to a different part of the region, a part of the region where they might be far better utilized. And this would be the Burlington Northern Santa Fe alignment between Portland Union Station and Vancouver Amtrak. So this is something of a little bit of a radical idea that's been proposed as part of a way to mitigate the disruptions that are eventually going to come with whatever an interstate bridge replacement project looks like. And it has actually a fairly solid case to it. We're looking at less than 10 minutes between Van the Vancouver Amtrak station and Portland Union station, far faster than a car. Amtrak currently runs, runs between these two stations in about 16 minutes, but because these are lighter trains and DMUs, they would have much better performance. We're looking at about 10 minutes. You could even potentially get a St. John's North Portland stop here if you were to, if you were to do a platform in the trench around Lombard, and you might even be able to have a stop in Slabtown, for example. Now, the issues with this one are you'd be dealing with a class one railroad. And the best way that it's been explained to me is you have your local government, your county government, your state government, 
your federal government, Congress, the president, God, and class one railroads. <laughs> oh my <right>? God. <laughs> BNSF would have to be extremely incentivized in order to participate in a program like this, particularly with, as we've been talking about, the type of frequency we would want for a successful service. At the same time, I do think it's something worth exploring, right? Like TriMet gets to save face and transfer a service rather than cancel a service. The rolling stock continues to get to be utilized. The maintenance equipment continues to get to be used. It's not a terrible idea, even if there are quite a few obstacles towards it being realized. Yeah, specifically like the legislative nightmares that could come into it. Or actually, I don't know if even legislation would come into it as much as cooperation between organizations. Yeah. Yeah. So in closing, what do we think? So it makes a lot of sense to run a train service along the west alignment. There's no real alternate route on which you can run a bus that'll come anywhere close to the speed that the west manages to pull off. But the problems with the service, how it's run, the operating philosophy behind it is dire. It's, mm -hmm. it's not a useful service as it is today. And I don't want it killed off. I think it's valuable if it's fixed. I agree. And the idea of extending it down to Salem, I think I love that idea because I know quite a few people who are government employees who have to commute to Salem and they mm. go on I-5 South and it's an absolute nightmare. So having a commuter rail like this would be a substantial asset, I think. But then it's also just like we like we've talked about confronting the failures and well, not confronting the failures, but just just fixing the infrastructure overall and getting this moving, I think, is conducive to the future of of the West overall. Absolutely. And honestly, you know, I don't think that this corridor is necessarily ever going to be dense enough or have the type of infrastructure that would like support a max. And even if it did, again, Bradley, like you're saying, there's no good alignment that would go to all these destinations. The West is a very logical transit line. It's a revival of the type of service that built these communities in the first place. It's just not being run in a way and with a philosophy that allows it to reach its full potential. Only time will tell if it gets used wisely in the future. Well, the train's leaving the station and this episode's over. Where can the good folks find us online? Uh, you can find me on Twitter for probably two more weeks before the site is completely unusable at Xavier D. Stickler. Bradley, where can they find you? Well, I'm also on Twitter. I'm at Bondi underscore Bradley. And for as for me, I'm, I don't use Twitter very much, so you can likely find me on Instagram at JKMDEM, J-A-Y-K-A-Y-E-M-D-E-M. And before I forget, we actually documented our West train ride in a little short video, which you can find on our Twitter and Instagram at Greater Greater Portland. And if you'd like to keep up with the show, you can do so on PRP.FM, as well as Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, or pretty much wherever you get your podcasts. You'll also be able to find full-length videos with graphics and slides alongside our episodes on YouTube at the channel Greater Greater Portland. And for just $2 a month, you can help us in our mission of making Portland a better place to live, as well as get access to exclusive written works on our Patreon. 
And of course, you can listen to us live and in stereo on 99.1 FM, Portland Radio Project, every second and third Sundays at 4 p.m. Thanks for listening. From the Rose City, this has been Greater, Greater Portland. Thank you.